guys, it seems like you guys were afraid to sit close to me this morning. Everybody's a few rows back. Afraid I was going to spit on you or something? Um, long time ago, <clears throat> when I was a brand new, right out of the factory, first time lead pastor, I needed a new car. My old car had uh, quite literally flamed out one day on the highway, caught fire. <laughs> And uh, so I needed a new car. My in-laws uh, were replacing one of their cars, which happened to be uh, a low-mileage, uh, not very old Lexus. Uh, and they offered uh, to give us the Lexus uh, for free. But as attractive as that offer was, I just didn't think that driving up to the church in a Lexus was a good look, even though it was free. Because, you know, you can't, like, you can't explain that to everybody in the church. I mean, people see you driving in it. You can't explain. It was free. It was free. You can't do that. So I just thought, not a good look. So I bought a cheap used car that I could afford, which was uh, an old Mercury Grand Marquis. I don't even think they make these cars anymore. They were a boat of a car. And any time I ever saw someone driving one, uh, it was usually someone very old. And so I'd pull up to a stoplight, look over, it'd be, you know, like a, like a, a blue-haired lady or something, and then there's me. One of the pastors uh, on my staff gave it the kiss of death when he dubbed it the Pastormobile. Now, several years later, I finally got rid of it, bought another used car, more stylish car, though. Uh, it was a stick shift, and... I've never been a car guy, but I absolutely have always loved driving a stick. There's just something about it that feels manly. It feels, it feels cool. And I was, I was shocked. I mean, I was really shocked, uh, not being a car guy, but how different I felt in this car. I kind of felt like people were looking at me in my car saying, we wish we were that man. I came to a stoplight once and I looked over at a guy on a Harley in the next lane and I felt like that he gave me an admiring nod like, yeah, welcome to the club. I was really shocked by how different I felt. Well, one hot summer day, <clears throat> Amy and I uh, went to the grocery store together in my car and as we were getting the bags out of the car, she grabbed a bag with a jug of milk in and, and it slipped out of her hand. And contrary to, to all of the laws of physics, uh, when it fell, it didn't just bounce on the floor of my car. It exploded inside of my car. I mean, everywhere, in every crevice, under every seat, on the seats, on the carpet, everywhere. And what I said next was not true. I said to my wife, it's okay, babe, I care about you more than I do my car. Now, it's good for my marriage that I said that, but I didn't really feel that. What I really felt was like, my life is ruined, which sounds really silly, but it's how I felt then. Now, I tell you this story because we're in a series uh, on, the, from the letter, on the letter of James called Authentic Christianity. And James, James writes this letter because he's concerned about the skill in which we separate our confessional theology uh, from our functional theology, what we say we believe and what our actions say about what we believe. My confessional theology would never have placed such value in a piece of metal, no matter how stylishly designed, but my functional theology left me devastated that the inside of my car was now saturated with 2% milk. We get very comfortable 
We get very comfortable, don't we, with a distance between what we say we believe and what we actually live out in our daily lives. And James wants to help us see and bridge that gap because psychologically that gap wears on you over time and it has a terrible effect on the lives of people in your sphere of influence. So if you have a Bible, I want you to find the letter of James, chapter 2. James chapter 2. And I should say that this sermon is a continuation of last week's sermon. I told you last week that the passage that we're looking at is very controversial. And I kind of left you on a, on a cliffhanger. And I asked you, I said, you know, pray for two things. Pray, number one, that my cowboys win, uh, which they didn't. And then the second, because I was kind of leaving you on a cliffhanger, I said, please pray that I'm, you know, that I don't get sick and I, and I make it this Sunday. Now, if I would have gotten sick, I would have been very deeply concerned about the prayer lives of the people of this church. <laughs> Fortunately, that didn't happen. Uh, the, this passage is controversial. And in fact, as I said last week, many people have read this passage and come to the conclusion that this, is, this passage is evidence of the Bible's lack of integrity uh, because it contradicts itself. Sure. It's what people have come to the conclusion of. And you know, one of our core values at City Church is intellectual integrity. We believe that the Bible can withstand all of the intellectual scrutiny that we bring to it. So when we come to something that is controversial, that some would say destroys the Bible's integrity, like this passage, uh, we don't hide it, we don't shy away from it, we don't skirt it, what we do is scrutinize it. Now, what I'm going to do this morning is since, we, is, since we read the whole passage last week, I'm going to approach this passage a little differently than I normally do. In the first part of my talk, what I'm going to do is I'm going to resolve this apparent contradiction. I'll remind you of what that contradiction is in just a moment. And then in the second part of my talk, I'm going to look at the last half of this passage that we read last week but didn't cover. And I want to do it that way. Because the last pass, uh, part of this passage bolsters the argument that James makes in the first part of the passage. Now, just to refresh your memories, the apparent contradiction is found in verse 24 of James chapter 2. James writes this. He writes in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, some of you, if you weren't here last week, may ask, well, where's the contradiction? Well, the problem is that back in the book of Romans, the apostle Paul said, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So you can see the problem, right? And on the surface, it does indeed seem like these two passages contradict each other. And the thing is, this isn't some small, obscure contradiction. Like, this involves a major foundational point of theology, one that spurred the Protestant Reformation, separating Protestants from the Catholic Church. Justification by Christ in faith alone, not by works. And yet you've got James here saying, no, you're justified by works, not just faith. How do we unravel this? Well, Remember last week we said that no matter what the form of communication is, the first rule of interpretation is that meaning uh, can't be determined apart from context, right? Whether it's an email, whether it's a, uh, a text that somebody sends you, whether it's a book, you can never determine meaning apart from context. 
And again, we saw last week that one clue to resolving this apparent contradiction is that in the verses that precede verse 24, we said that James is drawing a distinction between an authentic transformational faith and mere intellectual agreement in the existence of God. He's saying there's a difference between those two things. In other words, real faith versus fake faith. A living faith versus dead faith. James' argument throughout this whole book is that real faith in Christ involves an internal change that God makes in a, in a believer by giving you a new heart. And that new heart is moved and motivated by the Spirit of God with a whole new set of purposes. If you come to Christ, if you believe in Christ, you're given a whole new set of, a whole new heart with a whole new set of purposes, a whole new set of goals, a whole new set of values, a whole new set of loves, a whole new set of desires, thoughts. And because of that, James says, a transformed way of living life. That's James' overriding concern throughout this book, that there's an organic consistency between our theology and our daily lives. So we have to look at verse 24 with that context in mind. But here's what I didn't tell you last week. There are a couple of other contextual clues to resolving this apparent contradiction that are also extremely important. Back in the book of Acts, you don't have to turn there, I'll tell you about it. The writer of the book of Acts, Luke, records this account of a theological uproar that revolved around Paul's teaching about justification in Christ alone, apart from obedience to the Jewish law. Now, some Jewish people were deeply offended by this because they held the Jewish law in high esteem, and they accused Paul of preaching heresy. So Paul goes to a council in Jerusalem of the most highly respected Jewish Christian leaders. And he tells them firsthand what he's been preaching. Now, why does he do that? Why does he tell them firsthand what he's preaching? Well, I don't know. Have you ever been misquoted? Yeah, I mean, sometimes, you know, what we say and what others say we said are often quite different, aren't they? So Paul goes uh, before this council of Jewish Christian leaders, highly respected Jewish Christian leaders. And he says, guys, I'm preaching that the gospel of Jesus Christ is that a person is justified before God by faith in Christ alone and not by works, not by obedience to the Mosaic law. And the council endorsed Paul's preaching. And they even sent a, sent a letter saying, we agree with what this man is preaching. Now the question is, what does that have to do with this passage that we're looking at in James? Well, as it turns out, the leader of that council that endorsed Paul's preaching of justification by faith alone was James, the writer of this letter. James knew what Paul was teaching about justification by faith alone and not by works, and he heartily endorsed it. So it wouldn't make sense that he's contradicting that here Unless he said, hey, I've, I, hey guys, I've, uh, I know I said that I agreed with that, but I've changed my mind on that. It wouldn't make sense. But he doesn't do that. And in fact, he even tells us in chapter 2 that he agrees with Paul. Look at verse 5, chapter 2, verse 5. James says, he says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters... Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit 
the kingdom that he promised those who love him. Now pay attention to that word inherit. Do you know what the difference is between an heir and an employee? You know the difference? What's the difference? Well, an heir receives an inheritance as a gift based on relationship, and it's guaranteed. An employee receives a wage as payment in exchange for work. And so James is saying here, he's saying, yes, salvation is a gift based on relationship. Not a wage entered into, or not a wage received by working for it, by doing works. So just a few verses up from verse 24, this, this very controversial verse, James is basing the rest of his argument in chapter 2 on Paul's theology of justification by faith alone. It's not that he disagrees with it. He's basing his argument on it. Well, so the natural question is, well, why does 20, verse 24 sound so contradictory to what Paul says? Well, and uh, forgive me because I know this probably feels like a little bit of a classroom right now, a classroom teaching on how to interpret things. But another rule uh, about interpretation that I, want, that I want to mention that applies to any and all forms of communication, not just the Bible, is that words, words can have different shades of meaning uh, depending upon the context. This is true in, in all forms of, communi- of communication. For instance, think about this. Think about the word clever. In America, when we use the word clever, we usually mean either that a person is uh, quick-witted and funny, or maybe that they have an idea that they've come up with that is very smart and creative that no one else has thought of. That's how we use the word clever. Now, in England, the word clever is used to refer to how smart a person is. So, he is very clever means he's very intelligent. Now, what's interesting is if you notice, both uses are very close to one another. They both have in common the idea that a person has a very sharp mind, but they carry a slightly different shade of meaning. Okay, what does that have to do with Verse 24, and this apparent contradiction. Well, here it is. When Paul uses the word justification back in Romans, he's using it to mean to make right. To make right. You're justified, made right with God by faith alone in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Okay? But justification can also have a slightly different shade of meaning than make right. It can also mean to prove right. To prove right. Let's say, let's say Randy and I uh, get into an argument about which of the Manning brothers was the better quarterback. Randy's going to say Eli because Randy is a Giants fan. I'm going to say Peyton because, well, I'm right. But what's... what's but, What's Randy going to say in response to that? Well, he's going to say, he's going to say, prove it. Prove that Peyton was the better quarterback. Justify your argument. And maybe I would have to go back and dig up some statistics that would prove, that would justify my assertion that Peyton is a better quarterback. Now, if you look at verse 18, this is clearly what's on James' mind, this idea of prove it. Look at verse 18. He says, someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith. Prove your faith without the works. And I will 
show you my faith. I will prove my faith by my works. Can you hear it? Yeah. He's saying, show me your faith. Prove, prove it. Show me evidence that your faith is authentic. Because, again, what we saw last week is that the whole book of James is teaching that authentic faith always results in transformed living. Okay? So here's what I want you to see, is that James is not disagreeing with Paul. He agrees with him. He's saying, yes, a believer is justified by faith alone in Christ. And you know that person has been just justified by faith alone by the way their life is changed by it. So again, verse 24 is not a contradiction, as some people say it is. Okay, now that we've, we've, we've talked about that, I want to move into the last half of the passage. Because in this last half of the passage, James gives us three arguments in support of this idea that authentic faith always results in transformed living. One is the demon argument. The second is the Abraham argument. And the third is the, re, is, is, uh, the Rahab argument. Okay, the Rahab argument. So let's look at them. First, the demon argument. Look at verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well, the demons also believe and shudder. Now here's what he's saying, is that intellectual agreement with the fact that God exists and that he is one isn't proof of, of authentic faith. Why? Because he says, the defining characteristic of a mere intellectual faith is fear. Fear. He says, the demons believe and they shudder. Now, I'm not going to spend much time on this because we talked about it last week. But, you see, mere intellectual faith is just ca is calculating. It's a way of hedging your bets. It's a way of keeping God at a distance while on the surface being very religious and very moral at the same time. And the reason that people do this is because, well, they think of God only in the way that the demons do, as a powerful judge who can crush you if you don't do the right thing. See, that's how the demons see him. And so you keep him at a distance. Now, on the other hand, the, the defining characteristic of real faith is an ever-increasing love for God and love for others, an increasing desire to know him, to be with him, to obey him, to serve him, out of love for him, not because you live in fear of him, okay? That's the demon argument. Now, the second argument that he makes is the Abraham argument. Look at verse 20. He says, but are you willing to acknowledge, you foolish person, that faith without works is useless? Was our father Abraham not justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham was made right. Remember, that's what Paul was talking about, made right before God. And he was called a friend of God. And you see, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So if you're familiar with um, the Bible, there's a story in the book of Genesis about a man by the name of Abraham who out of obedience to God trekked up on a mountain with his only son Isaac and was willing to offer his son Isaac up as a sacrifice to God. Now you have to be very, very careful with that story 
Because it makes God sound like, it just makes him sound atrocious that he would ask somebody to sacrifice their only son. But you have to remember that Abraham came from a pagan, um, ancient Near Eastern background. And the gods that he always had believed in required child sacrifice. They were death cultures. That was part of worship, is offering a child as a sacrifice. God wanted Abraham to understand how different he, God, was from the pagan gods that Abraham had always worshipped. So when God commanded Abraham to offer his son uh, Isaac as a sacrifice, Abraham would have thought, well, that's, that's normal. That's what all the gods do. But what happened? Well, when he got up to the top of the mountain... God stopped Abraham from sacrificing his only son and instead provided an animal for Abraham to sacrifice instead. And I don't know if you remember this, but in response, Abraham said, this God provides. In other words, this God is different than all of the other pagan gods in that he provides the sacrifice, which of course was the whole point that God wanted to make to Abraham. He isn't the God that requires someone to sacrifice for a relationship. He's the God who provides the sacrifice. Okay? But Abraham didn't know that when he trekked up the mountain. And the point that James is making is that if faith results in true, uh, practical affection for the Lord, it can't be demonstrated any more powerfully than in Abraham's willingness to offer his only son to God, the most precious thing in his life. For the simple reason that he loved him. Not because it was logical, not because it was practical, not because it's efficient, not because it was easy. But he says, he says the, the most tangible demonstration of love for God, of true, authentic faith in God, is the willingness to lay on his altar the most precious thing in your life. And in the James argument, excuse me, in the Abraham argument, James is saying, see, that's, that's what authentic transformation looks like. Finally, there's the Rahab argument. Look at verse 25. In the same way was Rahab the prostitute not justified by works. Also, when she received the messengers... And sent them out by another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now, you have to remember, these were Jewish people who James was writing to. They knew their Old Testament very well. They were well-versed in uh, Judaism. If you don't remember Rahab, I'll just summarize her story by saying that Rahab was an outsider. Not only because she was a prostitute, but she was racially an outsider. She was a Gentile. Or as some people would have referred to her, a non-Jew. Scorned, looked down upon. But out of authentic faith in Israel's God, Rahab endangered her own life out of love for God's people. And James is saying again, this is what authentic faith looks like. And I think it's fascinating that as James argues for authentic faith, his two examples are just they're wonderful examples of the first and the second great commandment. In Abraham, he tells 
a story about how faith will always produce a faith-changing, a life-changing love for God, okay? And then in the story of Rahab, he says that faith will always produce a life-altering love of others. That's the nature of true faith. In changing your heart, it transforms your life. While on the other hand, fake faith, mere intellectual agreement, we'll look back up at verse 14. Look at the difference. Think of the difference between, say, Rahab and who he's describing in verse 14. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, and be filled, yet you don't give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? You see the difference between Rahab and those people? Rahab's willing to risk her life for God's people. This person isn't willing to risk anything for God's people. This person sees a need, sees a brother or sister in Christ in uh, desperate straits and just says, see ya. Stay warm, will ya? Stay well fed, even though you don't have any resources. And is not willing to help at all. You might wonder, as you read this passage, why does James speak so harshly here? Um, he calls these people who have mere intellectual faith fools. That's a pretty harsh word. Well, here's why he does that. You know, the hardest person to get through to is a person who is full of self-deception, who's proud of their morality and their religiosity. On the other hand, the easiest people to reach with the gospel are often the Rahabs of the world. The, the people who are the outsiders, the others, the people who've come to the end of their rope. And in many ways, they see life more accurately than the person who thinks they have it all together. They see what they really are. They see themselves as hopeless, broken, needy. This is why, by the way, AA meetings are, often feel more like church than, well, church. Addicts all know that they are addicts. Most of us don't realize how hopeless, how broken, how needy we are, and how our foolish self-deception puts distance between us and the God who is for us and the other people in our lives. Some of you know the, the sociologist Brene Brown. She did a TED Talk that uh, still one of the most viewed TED Talks. It was called The Power of Vulnerability. And in this talk, uh, Brown pushes people to embrace the fact that they're broken with the reality that we're not alone in that. That we are, or easily could be, all of us, just one step away from the broken people that all around us. Here's what she says. She says, we are those people. The truth is, we are the others. She says, most of us are one paycheck, one divorce, one drug-addicted kid, one mental health diagnosis, one serious illness, one sexual assault, one drinking binge, one night of unprotected sex, or one affair away from being those people, the ones we 
don't trust, the ones we pity, the ones that we don't let our children play with, the ones that bad things happen to, the ones that we don't want living next door. And as a loving pastor, James speaks very directly to the self-deceived, self-inflated people who don't realize that they need more than an intellectual faith in God. And he says, you're a fool if you think that mere intellectual faith saves you. It doesn't. Now, the question is, what what are we to take away from a passage like this? Well, I, I want you to, what I want you to take away from this important passage of Scripture is this, first, that there, there is no contradiction between James and the Apostle Paul about justification. I said that earlier. I want to repeat it. There is no, there is no contradiction here. James is simply saying that authentic faith, if you see a person who has been justified by Christ, you will always see a transformed life because they've been given a new heart. He agrees with Paul. The second thing I want you to see is that a transformed heart always begins with the willingness to bring your sins to the foot of the cross. Because I can imagine that some of you might uh, encounter this passage, might leave here today thinking, "Um, I don't feel very encouraged. In fact, I feel quite convicted. I'm wondering, do I really have faith? Well, I want you to be reassured that if you've come to the cross and if you have acknowledged that you're a sinner and exercised faith in Christ alone, that's already a sign of true faith. That's a sign of a transformed heart to admit your need for a Savior. Take encouragement from this passage. That willingness to say, yes, I'm, I can't save myself. I need a Savior. That's a sign of a transformed heart. Don't let it stop there, but that is a sign that you've been justified by faith in Christ alone, okay? But I also want you to walk away from this understanding that there's a warning here in this passage. And the warning is that mere intellectual agreement with the existence of God is not authentic faith. Perhaps there's somebody in this room whose faith is what James would call a fake faith. You've given your mind, you, you agree, you, you, you know, you, theologically you agree there is one God, he explains, he's the creator, he explains the existence of the world, he explains meaning of life, I get it, yes, 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 you would, you would agree with that. But you've held tightly onto your heart in your life, and you live your life as if your life belongs to you. And James would say, that's fake faith. You need to confess that that faith isn't faith and you need to seek God in forgiveness and trust him as you've never trusted him before. Trusting him for your sins, for the forgiveness of your sins in Christ. And then for all of us, this passage is a call. It's a call to more heroic living. We've been talking about that through this series, that James is calling us to be to a heroic kind of life. Little H heroes, right? We, we understand that the big H hero is Christ. 
But he's calling us to a more heroic living, not for your glory, but for Christ's, in which the reality of Christ's love for the marginalized, the oppressed, the poor, the neglected, is lived out in your own life. You see, you can't come to Christ without recognizing that you yourself are one of those people. You were poor, you were homeless, you were oppressed, and Christ rescued you at your lowest point. James is saying, authentic faith always results in transformed living. Yes, we're justified by faith alone in Christ, and that very justification will manifest itself practically in our lives. I want to close with this. When God called Abraham to sacrifice his son, he stopped him from doing so. Why? Well, because he wanted Abraham to understand that he is the God who provides the sacrifice. And of course, at the cross, that's what he did. He provided the sacrifice in Jesus Christ. It was his only son that died on a cross. And through faith in him and him alone, anyone who comes to him with a sense of that, with an understanding, with a sense of that, brokenness, that I'm a sinner and I need a Savior, anyone that comes to him can be justified by faith in Christ and what he did on the cross alone, not by works. Would you bow your your heads with me in prayer? I do pray, Lord Jesus, for those who are here today who may have... um, what James would call a mere intellectual faith, um, a fake faith. And you've spoken uh, very clearly, very directly here in this passage of Scripture, Lord, because there is so much at stake. And I pray that if there are people like that in the room today, that they would give heed to this and that they would understand that the reason you speak directly is because you love them enough to do so. Sometimes that's what we need, is someone to just say something directly to us. Even though it may hurt in the beginning, it's for our good in the long run. And so James does this on your behalf. And I pray that people would take heed to this. And that they would come to a place where they bow at the foot of the cross and say, Yes, I am a sinner. I need a Savior. I can't do enough good things. I can't go to church enough. I can't be religious enough to save myself. Uh, Only Christ's death on the cross could save me. And then, Lord, for all of us, I pray that we would walk away uh, from this with a call to, this, this call to a more heroic life, one that is more organically consistent with what we say we believe. And that even as a church, that we would demonstrate our genuine transformation um, by our love for the marginalized and the poor and the oppressed in society, whatever they look like, whatever the form of marginalization or oppression, that we would be drawn toward them, not repelled from them. Thank you for a passage of scripture like this that speaks so directly to us. And um, it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. 